Welcome to Crazy Enough to Win. I'm your host, John Grubbs. Welcome to the show. Now, today we have a special treat for you. We have Monica Ritchie, a health expert and a guru. She's a social media influencer. Monica, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, John. It's good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you too. Thank you. What are we talking about today? I'm so I'm so in the dark. I love this. Very exciting. I think we have to do the uh, the obvious thing first, but uh, I think our listeners would want to know how's your cousin Christina Ricci doing these days? <laughs> yeah, nope. Don't know her. Don't know her at all. Never met her actually. But um, uh, you know what? If you asked her how I'm doing, she'd say I'm awesome. Ah, that's cool. I bet she would. <laughs> I bet she would. You know, she's a, I don't know if she's a B-lister at this time or if she's still an A-lister, but the only reason it sticks out with me is my brother-in-law, he owns a karate studio in the outskirts of Los Angeles, and he actually trained her to do some scenes in a movie. How cool is that? Oh, my gosh. Do you know what she was in since we're talking about her? Um, she was in a show that didn't last very long, but that I loved called Pan Am. Do you remember that? I don't. What was it, it was, about? It was several years ago and it was about, it was a period series about Pan American Airlines in the sixties. And I love period series. First of all, like Mad Men, I love the sixties time period and it only lasted one season. It was her Margot Robbie, who is like the most beautiful woman in the world. And then I can't remember who else, but it was really cool. Is that on Netflix? I have, I don't, I don't remember where it was. I think it might've been on, um, it wasn't Netflix. It was on not F, maybe it was FX or AMC or one of the sort of fringy like cable channels. So that's the beauty of these podcasts. This is, this is so cool. When I was a little kid, I lived overseas and we traveled a lot. My dad was in oil and gas and we traveled a lot as a, as a young family. And my favorite airline was Pan Am. And no I, way. Really? I, I always drew pictures of Pan Am, Pan American Airlines. It was, it, How the, funny. It, it's so cool. Hmm. Now I'm gonna have to look it up for sure. So most of us are missing gym time. What is your message to these listeners who are struggling because they're not in the gym or they're not able to go to the gym? What, what's your message to them? Well, you know, I assume that you mean we're missing gym time because we're in the midst of this weird, weird Corona thing where we're supposed to stay home and blah, 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 and all that, right? Um, <laughs> my message is that human beings are incredibly adaptable. And it's like that book, you remember that book, Who, Who Moved My Cheese? Mm, yeah. Who moved my gym? Yeah. <laughs> right? Who closed my gym? And I think that if you think about the reasons that you go to the gym and that you like the gym and and that you're missing the gym, that's helpful in helping you to adapt to not having it available to you suddenly. So for example, there are people like me who will not go to the gym. Like I it's a barrier to me to have to leave my house, mm. to have to put on clothes. I know that seems annoying, right? Dang it. I have to wear clothes, but it drive in, in my car, go somewhere, park and all that stuff has always been a, a psychological barrier to me. So when I started training, I started training at home mm. and oh my goodness, 
that one thing has made the difference between me staying consistent and not consistent with my, wow. with my training. So if you're a person who really, really craves that social thing from the gym, and that's why you're having such a hard time, then I think, you know, look at how can you create that in another way mm. to keep you focused and motivated until your gym opens back up again. So how, how might we do that? Well, if, if it were you, or if it were me, we could say, well, we could zoom gym <laughs> if we wanted to, there are people who have been doing that. You could get an accountability partner. You could get a group like I plug in with Fitness Twitter, which is an amazing, amazing group of people. I call them my team mm. because I'm by myself at home. I don't, nobody trains with me at home. I've completely transformed my body in a year, completely by myself, just using the guidance and accountability of my friends on fitness Twitter. So the gym itself is just the venue. You can achieve all kinds of stuff outside that venue if you really figure out what it is that is most important to you and then look at resources for how to do it. And there are lots and lots of those out there. Wow. So another lady I know uh, that's uh, that's into fitness online, I don't know her personally, but I know her online, but she memed, uh, this funny thing. And she said, I am so sick of the gym already. Look at all these women peacocking their new gym outfits just to go to the gym. <laughs> so I'm guessing for a lady, it's different than a guy that you, you kind of feel like you have to get prepared to go to the gym. And it's, it's more of a challenge for some ladies, I, I guess. I don't know. I mean, the years that I did go to the gym and fits and starts, I never felt like I had to do anything, you know, special, but who knows? You know, everybody's different. Everyone is different. And uh, I put a lot of my fitness stuff on Twitter and on um, Instagram and I do not look good. Believe me, dude, do not look good. There is no hair and makeup and it's dirty hair, in fact, and it's in a clip and I'm wearing no shoes and my, you know what, but it's just, I'm so entrenched in that community and of challenging myself and pushing myself and, you know, like just, I don't know, being a part of a team that I don't, I don't really care. And maybe, maybe it's a function of my age too. You know, you get to a certain age in life and there are things you stop caring about. And I, I don't, you know, I'm not a fitness model. I'm not sponsored by, you know, any fitness company. So I don't have to look good when I'm putting my, my videos out for, you know, for critique. It's funny. Uh, you know, the, uh, that whole perception of how you look before you go into a gym. One of the things that changed for me a few years ago when I really got serious about working out again was it didn't matter what I wore. I can go in there with a suit, take my suit coat off, hang it on the rack and get an arm workout or get a shoulder workout. I mean, I go wearing weird things to the gym, work clothes, dress clothes. It's not an impediment for me. I don't feel like I have to change every time I go. Now, if I'm doing cardio, I'll probably change, but the appearance has never been a big issue for me going to the gym. Is that strange? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I've seen guys at the gym in the, in the old days that I would look at him and go, I wonder why he's wearing work boots. Those are heavy, like, you know, like jeans or jeans. Yeah. To me, that would be physically uncomfortable. I do dress. I will say I do dress very specifically for when I work out. I always wear a sports bra and I wear like a pair of yoga pants or some sort of like a bike short or something like that because I, it's just comfort, mm. honestly. It's just yeah. straight up comfort. I don't, I don't like to wear jeans in my normal life, let alone, you know, training. So, and, I, and of course, during, during COVID shutdown, I've been in my uniform every day, which is yoga pants and a sports bra. <laughs> I mean, I like, I think I put on re real pants, you know, maybe five times in the last three months or something. 
<laughs> so you notice I got a sport coat on here, but guess what? I'm wearing shorts on the bottom down here. Most people don't even notice that, you know. <laughs> you know, that's the beauty of these Zoom meetings. You can <laughs> I wear this, you know, super cute top on the top, and then if I stand up to go get something, you can see I'm wearing my yoga pants. On the <laughs> so here's a pivot for us. I have known you and had you in my network as an organization expert. Yeah. Help us understand now how you help others. Well, you know, when you introduced me, you said I'm a health expert and I'm, you know, I hate to call you out, but I'm not an expert. I only know what I know now in, compared to where I was last year, <laughs> I am an expert and compared to where a lot of people are, I might be an expert to them, but I just want to be super clear that that my journey, my health and fitness journey, which is a massive part of my life for the last year, is my journey. Mm. And um, I don't, I try really hard not to evangelize about the way I eat. I try hard not to evangelize about training. I just sort of do my thing. And what I found is that people ask me, hey, mm. what are you doing? Wow, you sure look different. What are you doing? You know? Um, but if you're asking me what I do for a living, which is so interesting because it all comes together. This is so interesting to me. And, and, and again, this may be a, a, fu a function of where I am in my life, but it seems like the farther you go in your life, the more things begin to converge and become clear. Mm. And so if I look over my life and I go, okay, well, what is my career consisted of? What are the, what are the common threads that weave their way through my career? I spent 20 years in hotels and restaurants. And then I spent 20 years in organizing and productivity. And in the last few years, I've shifted a little bit more away from productivity, more into coaching. Hmm. And when I was really reflecting on what is it, and, and, the, and then the health part has weaved into it because it's become such a huge part of my life and such a, such a driver uh, for me. And what I realize is that everything that I do leads down the road of facilitating learning, growth, and self-mastery, whether it's personally or in business. So like, for example, when someone, uh, if, if you were to look at my Twitter feed, for example, and I'm posting about the fitness stuff, it's not just about the fitness stuff. One of my hashtags that I started, I don't know how long ago, a year ago, maybe not even, is something I use all the time. One of them is self-mastery and one of them is muscle builds the mind because that is what my experience has been. As I have pushed myself physically harder than I have ever pushed myself before and developed a discipline I have never had before, what I found is it changed my mind. It changed the way I think. It changed the way I look at things and, and, and perceive things. And it's, it's made my mind so much more elastic if, if that's, that's like the best word I can think of in so many ways. And when I look at what I do in my, for my clients, for coaching, we do the same thing. It's like, it, it, it's elasticizing your mind and saying, what's available to me? What's, what other ways of showing up in my work are available to me? You know, how many ways can I think of to approach this outside of my default reaction, whatever that might be, or my default lens that I look through, I use the sort of the construct of lenses a lot, you know? Yeah. And so whether it's that people who say to me, I really, I'm just, I'm frustrated. I need you to help me. I need you to tell me what you're doing with your fitness, or 
I'm frustrated with my business or I'm frustrated with my salesperson there or my customer service people or whatever it might be. It's all about awareness and about the habits we're in and about what do we avail, our, avail ourselves of that, we're, that we haven't used before that could create a completely different outcome than we've created before. How cool is that? I think anybody that's exercised for any period of time knows that there is a physiological connection between the brain and the muscle, that there is something about working out that gives you mental clarity mm. or you lose it when you don't exercise. So it, it sounds like that's what you're talking about, that connection between the mind and the body. It, it is. Absolutely it is. You know, I'm sure that there's a brain scientist out there and I know a little bit, I've studied a little bit about brain science, but not a ton, but it is fascinating stuff, believe me. Um, where the dopamine and the, all the chemicals that are released, you know, they say about the runner's high, which I have mm -hmm. never gotten in my life because I don't run, but, but it's that same sort of idea. You know, it's the, it's not only though the chemical piece of it, I believe it's the, let's say, how can I say it? It's the, it's the achievement piece of it. The emotional it's the emotional piece of it. And, and when I was in still in productivity and, you know, I, I do use this phrase today, but when I was in really in productivity, I did a lot of speaking and training. I had this thing I called the upward power spiral and the upward power spiral is that one good thing leads to another good thing. And when you, for example, when you manage your time, well, you're able to manage your priorities better. And when you manage your priorities better, you're able to get better outcomes. And when you get better outcomes, you're able to influence other people more. You know, it's like the one good thing leads to the next thing. And similarly, yeah. one bad thing leads you down on the downward spiral as well. So that's kind of the thing that exercise does. It's one of those, one of those things, those anchors on your upward power spiral that you can hook your little carabiner onto and pull yourself up. Because if you realize that you're strong enough to consistently commit to a fitness training program, for example, then suddenly your mind begins to go, what else am I strong enough to do? What, what else is possible for me? Mm. You know, like, wow, I did this. Look at me. Like, it's, it's powerful when you achieve things. It really is. It gives you confidence. I 100% agree with that. It's the, to me, it's the idea behind making your bed every morning. It's that one success that you start the day with that you're proud of at the end of the day. And you know, there's, of course, there's tons of people that talk about making your bed, but I am a huge believer in that upward spiral philosophy, but I'd never really considered it that way. Now it's important for us to address the elephant in the room. And there's no way for me to have a podcast with people that I respect without getting their point of view on this. COVID-19, well, we're recovering from the economic pause caused by the pandemic. And what are your thoughts about the economy at this point? Hmm. So interesting that you asked me that because I just wrote in a, in a message to a young man today that I consider myself somewhat of a mentor to him. I don't know if he does. I kind of think he does, but he was really having some anxiety and some stress over this COVID thing when it first started back in March and when we got kind of what we call lockdown. And so I've been communicating with him, trying to be supportive and just give him a different perspective. Cause again, that's part of what I do is help people to see diff different perspectives. And just today I wrote this COVID-19 thing is going to be a giant societal reboot personally and professionally for a lot of people. 
So I think that our perspective has been shifted and our lens has been focused on the choices we've made that have gotten us to where we are. And some people are looking at those choices and the results that created and thinking, you know what? I didn't make such great choices. I could have done better. And this is bringing that to light. And, and when it was funny because when I was in back doing the, the speaking during the, my productivity years, I used to say crisis creates clarity and it really does. So I think what's going to come out of this economically is that business will look different in some ways, but it will also look the same in some ways, but businesses will be destroyed and built. Careers will be changed abruptly. I think this is a giant get out of jail free card for a lot of people who have were sick to death of what they were doing and may have gotten laid off. And sometimes getting laid off is the best dang thing that can happen to you. Because all of a sudden, what you were too scared to do before, you've just been forced into doing. So someone pushed you out of that plane and now you've got to find your parachute, right? Mm -hmm. So if you hated your job before, this is the perfect excuse to switch industries. And when somebody says, well, you don't have any experience, you go, you know what? I don't have any experience in your particular niche, but here's the experience I have that makes me a perfect candidate for this. And by the way, COVID-19, I got laid off. I'm starting fresh. Mm. It's like everyone has an excuse to start over. Yeah. I think that's a great way to look at it. My oldest son graduated from college in December of 19, got his first professional sales job in January, moved to Houston and May comes along. And since he's the newest sales guy and it's a long sales cycle for what they sold, he was, he was let go. Uh, I think it is a moment for him to really reflect and reboot. He, he loves the work, but I don't think he loved that business. I think he's looking for something completely different and still in the field of sales, but something different. And it gave him an excuse to mm -hmm. pivot to something else. And I think that idea of pivoting is really important that you describe. It is. And you know, it reminds me of a client I had, and I don't talk about this client a lot. Um, I mean, I don't talk specifically about any of my old clients because of confidentiality and my ethics, but I talk generally. I had this one client I worked with for about three years regularly. And um, she was a good client from the standpoint that she always, she always paid my invoices on time and happily, but she was an absolute nightmare to work for. And it was one of those situations that a lot of people are in with their jobs where they go every day, nine to five or whatever they do. They don't like the job. They may not like the culture of the company. They may feel dragged down and diminished, but they get paid and they get paid okay. And it's just enough. And she let me go because she didn't, she found somebody who would do what I was doing for her at a fraction of my rate. So what that did for me was it, it did what I was too afraid to do, which mm. is cut ties with her, even though I really, really wanted to. And so I think, like you said, when you get forced into that position of pivoting, sometimes it's really a great blessing because it allows you to step up. It allows you to stretch. It forces you to be the person that you were afraid to maybe be before. And ultimately, even, it, even though it might hurt or it might, you know, suck for a while, it's growth. Mm. And it's, you know, it's always good. It's always good. Love that. Love that. So COVID-19 has split people into two camps or two extremes. 
and there's a two part, this is a two part question. What are your thoughts on the virus itself? And are you a business as usual person or proceed with extreme caution? My thoughts on the virus itself. Okay. Um, I happen to be a long time listener and fan of Dr. Drew Pinsky. And I've been listening to him. He's been doing a live show every day and he's talking about COVID and he's a remarkable man. He's a very, very accomplished man. And so I try to, I try to listen to what he says because he is really a voice of reason. And I think that it is incredibly contagious, but it's not that severe for 98 point, you know, whatever percent of the people who get it based on what we're seeing, what the data is. The interesting thing is, is the asymptomatic sort of factor, mm. right? That's the big mystery. Cause I could be walking around with it right now and have zero symptoms. In fact, I just read about a woman whose husband had it. He was sick for like eight weeks. He was sick. She had it the entire time that, or not the entire time, but she continued to test positive for it. She never had a single symptom living in the same house. So like, that's interesting to me. I don't think though that the lockdown, um, and this is just based on what I've learned from Dr. Drew, quite honestly, because I'm certainly not an expert, but based on what he says that, that we could have achieved the same thing with just masks and social distancing without shutting down our economy like we did. But you know, governors had a hard call to make and, and I wouldn't have wanted to be one of them. Honestly, I know I wouldn't wanted to be in that position because you're, you're, you, you're right in the middle between that rock and a hard place of, do I shut down our economy or, you know, do we risk having massive, you know, deaths from this COVID thing? And what I find interesting is that the risk factors are what is incredibly common in our culture, which is uh, poor metabolic health that seems to be the highest risk factor along with age, which mm. sometimes those things coexist, you know? Yeah. So that's what I feel about the, about the virus itself. And what do you mean about business as usual or proceed with caution? So there are people out there who are co in complete denial about any danger associated with the virus. And then the, there's some people who are uh, extremely on the other end of the spectrum, very afraid, afraid to go out, afraid to catch it. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a whole continuum of difference of opinion. I'm just curious about where you are and kind of why you feel the way you feel. Oh, okay. Um, now, clearly it's a real thing. I mean, obviously we see it's sweeping the world. Uh, I'm not particularly worried for myself to catch it. Um, but at the same time, I'm not walking around in, you know, the grocery store you know, kissing strangers clearly, but I didn't do that before. I am a very chatty person though. And that's been hard for me to not, you know, you know, go talk to people in the cottage cheese aisle. Um, Cause that's kind of, you know, that's just part of my personality. I'm just really outgoing and I like that, enjoy that. Uh, and I will, if a store requires me to wear a mask, I will, you know, comply. But if they don't, I may or may not, depending on how crowded it is, honestly. Yeah. And uh, I'm cautious. I'm absolutely cautious. And I'm trying to be respectful of people who are really being diligent about it. Um, so I guess I'm in some, somewhere in the middle, I yeah. suppose, you know, got a funny story for you. I uh, chair a group of CEOs locally and we meet once a month and we bring speakers in and we had a gentleman before the lockdown come from 
Denver. And as our, our as our last speaker before the uh, COVID nineteen, actually no, he was online. He was he was through Zoom. He was our first speaker through Zoom, and he was from Denver. And he and I were doing some prep work uh, before the meeting, and he is a road warrior like I am. He travels for his job speaking. And he said that he's, you know, struggling because he's got an older daughter who has special needs who has COVID-19. And I'm thinking, okay, this guy's, you know, probably close to 70. You know, I wonder if she lives with him or, or what, what the deal is. And he said, yeah, she lives with us, my wife and I. He said, actually, I think I'm the one that brought the virus into our home. And both my wife and I had it first, and then we gave it to our special needs daughter. And my wife and I, neither one of us had very major symptoms and they're in their sixties and seventies mm-hmm. and their 30 something year old daughter is, you know, struggling with the virus. So there are many people like me that travel a lot. I was at a, a, a big wedding in March. I'm, I asked my doctor, I went for a checkup the other day. I said, are you doing the antibody testing yet? He said, not yet, but I want to get the antibody test because I think many of us have had it and didn't realize we might've had it. Do you, do you agree with that? Absolutely. I have, I can't tell you how many friends I've talked to who said that they had some crazy thing that they couldn't shake for weeks and weeks in December, January, February. And um, one of them is a sports, uh, sports talk, sports radio guy here in Atlanta. And he, he goes to Vegas every January for um, Super Bowl. And I guess Super Bowl is technically end of January, but he said he got sick on the plane coming home and, and his wife made him go to the ER and he was really sick Hmm. and he's convinced that he had it. So I think it was here quite a bit earlier than what we thought it was here because there was no travel restriction. You know, there was no people who were sick could have flown over here very easily or people who were, who are Americans could have been, you know, around the world and picked it up and brought it over weeks and weeks before we knew it was here. Um, I have not, it was so funny. I was just thinking yesterday about how I haven't been sick. I don't even know the last time I was sick. Mm. I, I like, I no allergies. And I, I, again, I I think it goes back to the way I've been eating for a year, but I have no allergies anymore either. I have no seasonal allergies. I haven't got had a cold. I haven't had anything. It's just been incredible. Maybe I should be knocking on something <laughs> wood right now. <laughs> Absolutely. So you didn't pre-sneak looks at my podcast before agreeing to be my guest. So you don't know about this, but I've been following Sweden and their approach to the virus since early March and been podcasting about it since March because they're taking such a different approach to the virus. I call them the canary in the coal mine because they didn't lock down there. It's almost business as usual, but not quite. They're still social distancing and, and being careful, but they're leaving it up to people to be responsible to make smart choices in a pandemic. And yes, they've had some uh, pretty tough cases in the nursing homes as we have. You know, when you really look back, and by the way, I don't blame the position we took as a country. We, we did, I think we did the best we could with what we knew at the time. Mm-hmm. But when we look back, I think there's going to be some interesting data to discover because I think it's all tied to mass transit in New York. I think that the severity of it was really magnified because of the proximity of people in mass transit. And because of that highly concentrated population, I think I heard 50,000 people per square mile, Mm. uh, all getting in these tunnels and in these, you know, these, well, you had the, the buses, you had the, uh, 
what's the what's the thing that the subway in all these cities i think that is part of why it looked so bad in the beginning i think and i do think it's very contagious but the reason it looked so bad in the beginning was because of mass transit people catching it and then at the time people were told they had to go into these nursing homes and actually mm-hmm. seeded the disease in these nursing homes i don't think that there was anything intentional about that uh, but when you take and extrapolate all that data out of it i think we're going to see a much lower incident case looking back i mean things have changed every month did you hear i think i heard yesterday that the world health organization is now saying don't wear masks unless you are taking care of a COVID-19 positive patient. I did not hear that. I mean, so every month it changes. So, you know, not to fault any politician for making a decision, but it's going to be fascinating. I think for those data nerds like me to look back and really look at this, Sweden has been completely independent. Had you followed any of their information over time? I didn't follow it, but I did hear that they had taken a radically different approach. And I was really curious to see how it would all shake out, honestly, Um, because it is so different and it is a canary in a coal mine situation where we're, I think we're all eagerly waiting to see what, well, what's going to be the result of that? And what can we learn from that? You know, was it too much? Did, was lockdown too much? We, they mean the unemployment numbers are staggering right now. So my feeling is lockdown was too much, especially given the fact that the data shows that we never, ever even came close to exceeding our hospital capacities. Mm. And I mean, Drew was saying that we were, we, we overestimated, over, overshot it by like something like tenfold or more. Um, so there's that. The other thing that's interesting too, is that how, will we ever have a real number? Mm. Because if, if let's say there are millions of people who had it and who never knew they had it and who won't ever be tested for antibodies, if we were to include all those millions of people in the universe of people who had it, then that dilutes the the mortality rate down to who knows what. Yeah. Right? So in Texas, I checked the numbers before we came on. Uh, there are 29 million people that live in Texas. We have had 1,600 deaths. So if you do that math, it's like 0.0007 or six or something like that. I didn't do, I didn't do the math, but yeah, we're, I think we're going to discover a completely different approach to the virus and you can't, I mean, you can't unspill the milk. I mean, we've, we've locked down, Mm -hmm. but I think it's a great perspective on recovery and how we respond to a second wave. Um, I don't, I don't want to get into this, but you know, if with all the, the writing and the, protesting that's going on, all those people, they're not social distancing anymore. And I do believe we'll see a second wave because of that. And that's sad. Well, you know, it's, again, I'm I'm invoking Dr. Drew again. He was just talking about this on one of his lives. He said, we are going to see if being outdoors has has an effect on this. He said, because the data shows that indoor transmissions are the majority of where things happen. And he said, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous that people are being told to stay indoors when indoor transmission is where it happens the vast majority of the time, whereas outdoor transmission doesn't happen as much. And I don't know if it's because of, you know, air movement or if the virus is just that fragile. It is supposed to be a very fragile kind of an organism, I guess. Um, But he was specifically referring to the, the, the protests and the uprisings, we'll call them, I guess, about will these numbers spike? He said he's particularly concerned about California 
and it and we'll see if the numbers spike or if they don't spike too much despite the fact that these people were in close proximity and yelling and screaming yeah. and chanting and you know all those kind of you know droplets yeah. being whatever so we'll see if being outside has anything to do with it i don't know man this is such an interesting time it's like i know i know it's such great things to talk about right i know it really is i mean we've been through a lot of interesting stuff in our lives and and this is just one more thing you know that the kids today kids today kids today they they haven't seen as many kind of odd and unusual and crisis type things as we have but this one was brand new to all of us yeah, it's strange, strange times. It's another podcast, but I, I did a, uh, a podcast on Mueller's ratchet, which is this virology idea that, that over time viruses mutate in order to survive. And when they do, they get less harmful so that they can pass to more people. Mm-hmm. It's a way of surviving. And Arizona State University is doing a study on this virus that I think is already starting to yield some data about the and I'll, I'm going to keep this real simple because I'm not a scientist, but the uh, the amino acids that they use to to replicate protein are being lost. So the virus gets weaker, as you said earlier. I think there's some science to back that up. So here's a here's a pivot question. Okay. You post a lot about meat. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the human diet? Oh my gosh! Speaking of science, what a great question. Uh, okay. This is a tough one because it's such a broad subject, but I'll try to be succinct. I have come to learn that there is a tremendous amount of science out there, specifically on PubMed, if anyone is looking for studies to go down that sort of sciencey rabbit hole. And one of the things I learned is that the average person is woefully inadequate on protein. And that was one of the things that completely changed my perspective on food and my understanding of how protein works in the body. And when I, last July, 2019, I had been training. And when I say training, I don't mean I'm like Olympic training. I mean, I'm working out with dumbbells for 20 minutes a day, right? At this, at that point. And I was just in the maybe four, four or five months into my journey. Actually, that's not true. I lied. I was, I was six months into my journey because I started in January on a New Year's challenge because I was just feeling like squishy and tired and blah. And I couldn't, I just couldn't seem to get my weight and my body down to where I wanted it to be. And I was not ready to accept that, okay, well, this is as good as it's going to be from now on. So I started weight training in my home with dumbbells, very simple, 12 minutes a day. And then I upped it to 15 and then I upped it to 16 and then I went to 20. And so that was good. And I was, I was seeing marginal results, but it was still good because I was seeing results. It was great. And at that time I was already eating low carb. So I was not eating grains or sugars. Well, in July, I stalled, I kind of plateaued and I didn't feel like I was building any muscle and I didn't really feel like I was losing any more fat. And so I consulted with one of my fitness Twitter mentors, whose name is JT. And What's up, JT? Yeah, he is so the man. He knows so much stuff. It's incredible. And he just said to me, what are you eating? So I told him on a daily basis, roughly what I ate. And he was like, man, you, you need to at least double your protein, like at least. 
And I was like, wow, really? He said, yeah, trust me on this. So I doubled my protein. Dude, I'm not kidding you. From July to October, all the magic happened. What is that? July, August, September, four months, four months. All of a sudden I start seeing muscles I never saw before. All of a sudden, fat is falling off my body. It was amazing. I'll be turning around. I'm like, oh, look, there's a piece of my butt <laughs> on the ground. But it, it really is the protein. And, and, and so there's a ketogenic diet, which is high fat, moderate protein, very low carb. And then there's the thing that I do, which is called, it's, it's, I call it carnivore adjacent because it's not a strict, strict carnivore. But I eat mostly meat and eggs. Mm. And I eat some dairy. I eat very, very little vegetables and I eat almost no fruit. Wow. But here's why. And I know that it seems controversial, but the science that we have been told, talked about, I mean, that we've been fed for decades is meat is bad. Saturated fat is bad. Vegetable oils are good. Grains are good. Fiber is necessary. And what, what the science shows, and, and if you research it, if you bother to even look, is that none of that is true. And the science bears it out. And so I've seen so many results in my own life, my own health, my own blood work, and countless numbers of people on Twitter that, I, that are also on this same journey who are curing themselves of type 2 diabetes left and right, of all kinds of autoimmune diseases, of all kinds of inflammatory and chronic diseases, using diet only by cutting out or down the carbs and by increasing protein and by eliminating seed oils. <laughs> and so that's just where I'm at. I mean, and the thing is, this is the only thing I've done in my whole life that has created this kind of result for me. So I, I mean, what else can I go on? Pretty cool. I've got a good friend of mine named, he's also named John. He is uh, on the carnivore diet. And he tells me that, that some of the things that we've been told are good for us, like the fruits and the grains are really not good for us. They call, I think he said that they, they cause inflammation at certain levels in the body. Uh, and his, that I, I might misquote him, so I'm, I'm not going to use his full name, but his thesis is that the, that the human body was designed for meat and all these other things are substitutes when you can't get the meat mm. and that, by nature, they're not as good for us. So that, that's his thinking. Do you agree with that? I think to a degree, I agree with that. Yeah, I think there, I mean, you can look at, there are whole societies that subsist on virtually nothing but meat. I mean, Eskimos for years and years and years and years and years, nothing but meat. They don't, where are they going to get vegetables? Mm. Where are they going to get fruits? They're not, you know, growing bananas up there. Um, and there are ancient civilizations that subsisted largely on meat. And there are also civilizations that ate very little meat. The problem I think is our processed food and our reliance on grains and sugars, which is what creates the inflammation. So it's, it's, it's linked to leptin and insulin produ- production in your body. That's what, the, what so much of this problem comes from. And the idea that you have to eat five, six, seven times a day to quote unquote, keep your metabolism burning is exactly opposite because what you're doing is you're, you're providing your body a constant insulin drip. So it never, your, your insulin never goes low. What you want your insulin to do when you eat a spike, you want it to spike and come back down. And so that means eating fewer times per day and remaining full so that you're not grazing all day long. 
But again, there's, it's just, it's really controversial. And the fact is that there are lots and lots and lots of medical doctors who are coming around and understanding that there is science that shows that the, that the old thing we were taught is not true and it's based on flawed science or no science at all, but it's hard to unentrench, you know, mm. it's hard to unentrench from decades of that. That's why the results are so important. And that's why it's important for people to, to experiment and to see what works for them and what, what does your blood work look like? You know, like what, do your thing, check your blood. I, I do blood work probably three to four times a year sometimes. Um, and what's really true about the boogeyman cholesterol, for example, you know, there's just a lot, it's just a big, big subject to dig into, but, um, there's so much out there. In fact, um, doctors like Dr. Drew are jumping on as well and understanding that because he's very science-based as well. And he, he actually does a, a very low carb, high protein diet for himself too. And, um, again, it's not that you can't have carbs or that you you have to eat meat, but that combination of carbs and fats together is where it gets really kind of dicey because it tends to make us overeat. Everything is hyper palatable. Think about, we talk about this a lot. Think about a baked potato and having that plain. Ew. But now if you put fat on it, you're going to put a lot of butter and sour cream on it. Well, then it's awesome. And that combination of carbs and fats is where people get into trouble because it's like, we want to eat a lot of them. And we, you know, they kind of, trigger your brain because they're, they're comfort food. And they're, I can, I can tell when I eat carbs, my brain changes. I can feel it. It's like a switch that turns on. It's like, Oh, look, there's crack in my system suddenly <laughs> and I want more of it. So it's funny. Anyway, so, I know it's, it's a big subject and, and carnivore is, it, 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 I get it. It's, it's unusual, but man, yeah. I have never felt better. I've never looked better. I've never just, I've never been clearer in my mind either, which is great. So listeners, I'm going to give you some uh, ways to get a hold of Monica at the end of this podcast. So don't go away. We've got a few more questions I want to tee up with her. How do you respond to people that say diet is irrelevant? If you work hard enough and burn enough calories, what you eat doesn't matter. It's a big fat lie. It's, I mean, it's straight up. It is. And here's the thing. There's a, the, the saying is you can't outwork a poor diet. And that's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. You, you can't because your body uses what you eat to produce your actual tissues. So if you're not giving it decent, good quality fuel, the tissues that it produces are not going to be good quality. And also you're never going to lose the fat. Here's the interesting thing about abs, by the way, I have abs. Did I tell you that for the first time in my life? I have abs. Yeah. Here's the thing. Everybody has abs. If everyone who has that muscle wall has abs, the difference is, can you see them or not? And that's where the food comes in. The food portion is what allows the muscle portion to kind of show up. So you could have a big old bicep and a big strong tricep, but if you have a layer of fat all over top of it, you're never going to know it's there. Right. Hmm. And the other thing is too, about the protein is that protein is not just about making muscle protein helps regulate your hormones. It works in your thyroid. It works in all these processes in your body that are really important tissue repair and cell repair. And Oh my gosh, hair and nails and all the things. If you're not getting adequate protein, you're not giving your body 
enough raw material to make the muscle. So you could work out and work out and work out, but the protein is going to go to your important bodily functions first before it goes to muscle. And if you're not eating enough, you won't have enough to go to the muscle. When I'm not kidding you, when I doubled my protein is when all the magic happened, all of it. So it's a combination of the, of the training. You know, it's the other way too. It's not just about food either. You, you can't sit on the couch and eat a really great clean diet and expect you're going to have any sort of strength or conditioning or, you know, fitness or longevity based on muscle. Wow. So I'm reading a book by Daniel Kahneman about cognitive behavior. Don't judge me, but he cites studies about parole judges who make different decisions before and after they eat their meals. He says that the sugar, the sucrose is needed for the brain to make better decisions. What are your thoughts on that? That is also uh, not true. And so what, and what I mean is it's not technically untrue. Your brain can run on ketones, which is what millions of people's brains do who are in a ketogenic state. And those are people who are like me and your friend, John, who are on a carnivore diet or people who are on a keto diet, which is the higher fat version. The other thing is that your body can make its own glucose in the liver. If it is short of glucose, your body goes, you know what? I need some glucose right now. I don't have any. It can actually make it from the liver. And that's called um, neoglucogenesis. So the, the myth that your brain needs carbs or you're going to turn into a babbling idiot is absolutely exactly that. It's a myth. It, it's, it's simply not true. And again, it's easy to it's easy to just sort of say these things, but when you look it up, you Google it and you look on PubMed and you look at the studies, which it is an admittedly a giant pain in the behind. Mm. But if you want to know what's really true about the human body, you have to look it up. And there are lots and lots of doctors that are out there. In fact, there's a guy named Dr. Sean Baker who um, does a YouTube live every day. And he talks about this. He also eats pretty much just meat, I think. Um, and there's a guy named uh, Dr. Ted Naiman, who put out a fantastic book. He's a really accomplished guy. He put out a fantastic book called The PE Diet, which is protein to energy. And he talks all about how um, your body functions better when your protein to energy ratio is closer to two to one. And he has this whole model where he explains to you how to figure out what you know, like what foods are higher protein to energy ratio, for example, um, protein of tuna. If you get a hundred, hundred calories of tuna, you're going to get something like 40 grams of protein. And that's a lot of mm. protein. Whereas, whereas if you look at the protein in peanut butter, people think peanut butter is such a great protein source. It, it's not, it's very low in protein for the, for the amount of calories you get energy you get from it. Mm. So really just making thoughtful choices is, is one of the things that, that his um, work helps people do is to pay more attention. But anyway, I, I got off track there. But yeah, your, your brain does not, need, does not need glucose to make good decisions. Um, your body is remarkable, remarkable thing. Yeah. And he may have said glucose. I think I might have said the wrong sugar. So I don't want to misquote Brother Kahneman there. Um, let's shift gears. We have listeners around the world. Tell people about where you live. I live in Atlanta, suburban Atlanta, actually. And, um, Is that I've in Georgia? Here. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. In Georgia. Yes. In the southeastern portion of the United States. 
And uh, I have lived here since 1996, and it is a glorious place to live. There are so many good things about living here, honestly. You know, the thing we're known for, unfortunately, is traffic. Um, but every city has traffic. Every big city metropolitan area has traffic. I'm not sure why we got the bad rap on it, honestly. <laughs> But it's wonderful. The cost of living is great. The weather is beautiful. There's culture here. Um, the food is wonderful. If you are inclined to be a person who goes to restaurants, there's sports, there's arts. It's just fantastic. I love it here so much. Awesome. What's the weather like? Uh, is it, is it, is there a lot of trees, mountains kind of what? Like it's so what's really cool. I'm glad you said trees. What's really cool is anyone who's listening to your podcast, who's ever flown into or out of Atlanta will, absolutely understand what I'm saying. When you fly into Atlanta, you cannot believe that you're flying into a major metropolitan city. It is like a canopy of trees as far as your eye can see when you're coming in. In fact, it's called the city in the trees because of that. It is staggeringly beautiful when you fly in. And I've lived here over 20, 24, 24 years, I guess. And I still get just tickled when I look out the window when I'm flying in to see how many trees there are. It's, it's beautiful. And we're only about two hours from the mountains in North Georgia and North Carolina. And we're about five hours from the South coast, the Gulf coast. And we're about five hours from the, from the uh, Atlantic ocean. Wow. And we don't get hurricanes and we don't get earthquakes. So we don't get tornadoes for the most part. <laughs> so if someone wants to learn more about you, how can they find you? They can find me two places. Uh, one is on Twitter, which is my favorite place, and that is twitter.com slash Monica Ricci, which is M-O-N-I-C-A-R-I-C-C-I. And monicaricci.net is my website. Wow. So have, have I been mispronouncing your name all this time? I've been calling you, you Richie? It's you Ricky. have. You know what you have, but it's uh, it's nothing that I worry about just because it's that's the way it looks and that's the way it should be pronounced. <laughs> <laughs> But it's not. Okay, so here's a trick question for you. It's your last meal on earth. What do you choose to eat? Oh, well, I mean, you know, it's got to be meat, right? So I would say I really like a lot of people. I'll tell you this. This is a little secret. A lot of people in the carnivore community are all about the ribeye. I am not all about the ribeye. I like a leaner cut. So I'm going to go with, if it's my last meal, I'm going to go surf and turf. I'm going to go with a nice filet and do I want crab legs or do I want lobster? I don't know. Either one would be good. I, whatever, you know, whatever the prison is serving that day for seafood <laughs> would be good. <laughs> Either or. Either or. Yeah. And I got to have a little blue cheese, I think on my, um, on my steak. Yeah. So I'm a foodie and I love to cook and I love to grill. Uh, it, it's taken me years to figure out which cut of steak I like best. It's evolved to the flank or skirt steak because I cook it really hot and it sears the fat. Yeah. So are you saying the filet is your favorite? <laughs> I, I do. I like a nice, buttery, tender, just monolithically pink, gorgeous filet. I don't, I don't miss the fat of a ribeye. I don't, that's just not my thing. Mm. Um, you reminded me of something though. What was it when you said about the flank? Oh shoot. I can't remember what it was. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, do you do you grill yours with butter? I do not. I usually have some sort of uh, Mexican style marinade for my meat when I cook it, and I mm -hmm. cook it very hot, so it sears the fat on the outside and almost blackens the fat. Mm 
And then of course it's still, you know, medium on the inside. So that's, that's my favorite cut of meat. Mm. So here's our last question. Oh boy. Okay. I'm ready. Someone is coming out of quarantine and wants to make a lifestyle change. What is your advice? A lifestyle change. Oh, wow. That's broad. Um, I think my advice would be movement. Uh, it's tempting for me to say to change your diet, but I think the movement is key to the motivation and the, and the inspiration to changing the diet. Because I'm thinking about my own journey, and that was what got me committed and consistent. That's the secret, John, is consistency. Mm. And the consistency is what creates the result, and the result is what creates the continued motivation. Mm. So I would say, and and I have I have people that have approached me on Twitter and said, please help me. I need I need you know I need to do something different. And um, there's a couple people I'm working with, and what we say, ten minutes a day, like that's it, just ten minutes. When you start and you want to do thirty minutes or forty five minutes, that's a recipe for failure. You can do ten minutes easy, and it creates the habit. And mm. once the habit is created the consistency is created, then you start upping your time and you up your intensity. It's, it's getting yourself in, mo in motion and overcoming the inertia of being stopped. That is, I think, the secret to creating a fitness program that will stick with you. Very cool. So you are also a professional coach. Can you tell us a little bit about what an ideal client is for you in your space right now? Yes. An ideal client is a person who well, it's two actually. It's a, a person like a business owner. I work with business owners who are in growth mode, but who are feeling frustrated and want to figure out how do I get myself from where I am to where I want to be. And that's where we talk about the 360 degree toolbox, which is looking at how are you showing up in your business? What are your thoughts and your, and your habits and the things that you're doing that are keeping you from being going where you want to go? And then on the other side of that is the 360 degree toolbox we also use in corporate teams, customer facing teams, which is why are your customers leaving you? Is it because your corporate customer facing teams aren't bringing their best selves to bear in the workplace? Do your customers know you really care about them? And if not, we need to figure out how to get your people to embrace those things that convey, I care about you as a customer because customer loyalty is what helps drive profitability. If you have constant churn, you get customers in the front end of the pipeline like mad, but they're also leaving like mad. That's silly. So mm. the toolbox is the same set of tools. We just apply it in a different way. So we talk about curiosity in the toolbox. We talk about self-awareness. We talk about empathy and enthusiasm and, you know, human attributes that many times companies will train for skill, but they don't necessarily focus on who people are when they come to work, who, you know, who are they showing up as? Wow. And so that I, I just, I love helping people get better at being, at being effective human beings. And that's what this, you know, toolbox does. So there's a CEO or a business owner that's listening. How can she find you? Uh, MonicaRicky.net is my website. And um, there's a contact form there. I'm probably have my phone number on the site. I hope I do anyway. 
um, or it's Monica at MonicaRickey.net for direct email. Monica Ricky, R-I-C-C-I dot net. Monica Ricky dot net. Any final thoughts for our listeners? Yes. Up your protein, people. No matter what you do, whether you're training or not training, up your protein. It will facilitate your fat loss and you're going to see some abs. That's my health. That's <laughs> that's my my health tip for today because everyone who has abs gets happier. When you see those things, man, it's like, woohoo, who knew they were there? Awesome. Awesome. So last point, this is a podcast for crazy people. What made you say yes to a podcast called Crazy Enough to Win? Because I like you so much. I liked you the minute I met you. I don't know how many years ago that was. And we've been in touch, you know, on and off ever since. And when John Grubbs asked me to do something, I say yes. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Listeners, this is a podcast about going big. It's about being crazy enough to do things that other people will not do. We go against the grain. We challenge common thinking. We challenge ordinary thinking. We know that the disease in life, the true disease in life is mediocrity. We are crazy enough to win. Until next time.